This morning, I will be reading from 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Well, if you've been through our membership process here at the church, uh, you'll know we do a new member's dinner at Tom and Carol Mercer's house, kind of to tie everything up. Uh, if you're visiting here this morning, Tom is our senior pastor, Carol is his wife. She does a, at this dinner, a get-to-know-you game. She has a list of questions she'll ask, one of which is, who here has a grandparent that was faithful to pray for your salvation? There's always two or three that will share about that quiet work of prayer that went on maybe for years that in the end was, was critical in helping them become a Christian. They came to the knowledge of the truth, as was just read. Prayer may be in the background unnoticed for years, but it moves mountains. If you grew up uh, hearing the King James uh, translation of the Bible, you, you might remember the sound of James 5.16 the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So a Christian who labors in prayer for the salvation of other people, that's an indication of someone who walks closely with God. In fact, such prayer is evidence of a healthy church because it reflects the very heart of God. So as we have seen in our series so far in 1 Timothy, there were some problems in the church in Ephesus, false teaching had arisen within the congregation, and so Paul writes his fellow minister, Timothy, he says, stay put, you have work to do. The purpose statement of the letter is chapter 3, 14 and 15. He says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So he's instructing Timothy on what a healthy church should look like. There are certain men that need to be silenced because of what they're teaching. And instead, in its place, the church needs sound gospel teaching that should be reflected in gospel-shaped living. So this was a needed word for the church in Ephesus, and this is God's word for us as well. So after exposing the false teachers, actually mentioning two of them by name, he turns to give some positive instruction to the church, and it's remarkable what he says First, he says, pray, pray. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Notice how he just stacks the words up, one upon the other, and they're all in the plural. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Paul is talking about all kinds of prayer, varied and frequent and the prayer is for all kinds of people. He gives one subset, the authorities. Why should we pray for all people? 
So I see four reasons in this passage, and that's what I'm going to work through if you're taking notes. Number one, so the church can live peacefully in all godliness. Number two, because such prayer pleases God. Third, because God desires all people to be saved. Just reading it right out of the text. I, I will explain that. And lastly, because Jesus died as a ransom for all. Okay, first reason we should pray, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is particularly connected to praying for the authorities. What's the connection? Well, in this passage, Paul emphasizes the universal offer of the gospel to every single human being. We're talking world evangelization to the ends of the earth. This message is for everyone. One reason we pray for the authorities is because we don't want the spread of this message to be hindered. Rulers who rule well promote peaceful conditions, which in turn facilitate gospel proclamation. Isn't that true? We can pretty much rest assured that I'll be able to finish this sermon this morning without some major military conflict or government interference. God willing. Because God has granted this country a stable system of government. We are free to gather. God's word is freely distributed. We can plant new churches. We can send out missionaries. You can teach your kids to love God and honor his word. You're not forced to send them to hear from someone else. And I was thinking, you know, if if someone did try to harm us this morning, if there was some kind of threat to our safety, we could call the police, and you know what? They would come help us. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you ever just stopped to think about that, that we have such a stable government by the grace of God that we can reach out to the police. We should, we should thank God for them. We should pray for them. We should pray for the authorities. Now, has the church in China, for example, prospered even under a harsh totalitarian rule? Well, yes, it has. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray that righteousness would prevail in the Chinese government, that, that believers could freely and peacefully go about their Christian lives, gathering for worship, sharing their faith openly with others. It's not so easy to do those things in China. As you well know, Christians there have suffered greatly. Paul is urgently calling us to pray for those in authority, whoever is in charge. So we should pray for Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Roy Cooper. We should pray for their flourishing in life. We should pray for their health. We should pray that they would rule righteously for the good of our nation. Now maybe you consider those folks your political enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, he doesn't downplay the mistreatment we we could possibly face from the authorities with, with the disciples he, he states it pretty plainly he says they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake he tells the church in Smyrna behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison evidently the civil authorities there were demonically motivated nevertheless Jesus says we should love our enemies Pray for those who persecute you. He simply doesn't allow Christians to remain in an angry, adversarial position. The Roman emperor at this time was likely Nero, a very evil man. He was no friend to Christians. Paul says, 
Pray for the king. Pray for him that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So godly and dignified. Praying for the authorities is strategic for the global mission, but it's also for the sake of our personal witness. I was involved in a uh, campus ministry at Georgia Tech when I was a student there, and one day we gathered with other Christian groups on campus to pray for the campus right there at the at the Campanile, the bell tower outside the student center. It's a very public place, a lot of students milling about. And uh, one student came to the mic and he said, we're here to show this campus that we're not afraid to be Christians. And I thought to myself, that is not why I'm here. Thank you for speaking for me. Uh, I thought we were here to pray for the campus. You know, what's with the vitriol, you know? We know opposition to our faith is inevitable. Jesus told us to expect it, but we shouldn't foolishly seek it out. A friend once told me, we may be the aroma of death to some, but there's no need for us to be bad breath, right? Do you see what I'm getting at here? We really don't help ourselves by getting red in the face and stomping around and stirring up the hornet's nest. No, that's what the false teachers were doing. They were known for quarreling, Paul says in chapter 6 that they have an unhealthy craving for, the, for controversy and for quarrels about words. Tom, he's going to pick up verse 8 next week, but, but read what it says. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This whole passage is bracketed by a call to prayer connected to the pursuit of holiness. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 8. So don't quarrel, pray. Be godly and dignified in every way. We should seek, to the best of our ability, to have a good reputation with those outside the church. That's actually a requirement for being an elder. Chapter three, verse seven. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Isn't that a great line? Doing your work with excellence, being quietly industrious, minding your own affairs, living that way commends the gospel to others. Your life should make the gospel attractive to people. You might be thinking, if if this gospel needs to be universally preached, then why is Paul urging a quiet life? How do we put that together? Theologian William Mounts is helpful here. He says, a Christian's life is not to be quiet of speech, but it should be quiet in nature, a tranquility stemming from a godly and reverent life. So character matters. Self-control, tactfulness, winsome words, attending to your work. This is the quiet life Paul is talking about. So we should gladly and eagerly pray for the authorities for the sake of the mission and for the sake of our witness before them, asking God to bless them with wisdom as they rule, and we should pray for their salvation. When was the last time you prayed for the President of the United States to receive mercy from God that he might be cleansed from his sins, just as you have been yourself? Well, moving on to our second point, such a prayer pleases God. Verse three, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It is good and pleasing to God when we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. 
We try our best to model this in our corporate prayer times, even this morning as, as Matthew gave an example for us. We, we pray for local concerns, local ministries, other local churches, missionaries, people groups across the globe that have zero or, or at least little access to the gospel. We, we pray for the men of our church, for women, for children, for students, for seniors, for those who are married, for those that are not. We rotate through these groups, bringing them all before the throne. And this, this pleases God. And it's our desire to excel still more in this good work. Paul tells the Corinthians, we make it our aim to please him. So the goodness of praying for all people is grounded in the character of God who desires all people to be saved. So we imitate the Lord as we intercede for the lost and for one another. You think of Paul in Romans 10 as he longs for his fellow Jews. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So it would seem that the church in Ephesus was not praying in this way. Uh, they were not praying for all people. You see what lengths Paul goes to uh, to urge this. He uses the word all four times. It seems that the, the false teachers were exclusivists. They, they weren't concerned about people at large. We've already seen how they were taken up with genealogies and myths and controversies about the law. And they were likely a sectarian Jewish group that didn't feel very much concerned about getting the gospel to the Gentiles. And they may have been teaching a doctrine where salvation was offered only to a select few. But Paul says, no, it pleases God when we pray for the pagan authorities and we pray for the unbelieving masses because their salvation is on the heart of God. So third reason, we should pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved. If you go back to chapter one, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So this category of sinner, it applies to all of us. This gospel is offered to you and to everyone, whatever your background, your ethnicity, the family you came from, the things you've done. The gospel is openly preached and universally offered to everyone. This is the compassionate heart of God. Well, let me help you if you're doing theological gymnastics in your head over this verse. Does verse four teach a universal salvation? As in, we will all eventually reach heaven without exception. All people uh, will be saved. Clearly, that's not how we're supposed to read this because the rest of the letter, and frankly, the rest of the Bible, demonstrates that not everyone will be saved. Chapter four, verse one, for example. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Chapter 5, verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Plainly, not everyone will be saved. Some will willingly remain in unbelief. Some will fall away. So in verse 4, it's not all people without exception. It's all people without distinction. God desires all peoples or, or, or all manner of people to be saved. Again, here we see his, his vast compassion is on display here in this text. His salvation is not just for the Jews. Paul himself, a Jew, says in verse seven that God appointed him to be a preacher 
to the Gentiles. That's non-Jews, that's the nations, that's, that's pagans. He emphasizes that point. Now we do believe in the doctrine of election here in this church. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but I'm telling you, none of us are gonna reach heaven and when we're up there, we're not gonna pat ourselves on the back and say, I, I, I made the right decision, I'm so glad. You know, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm smart, I made the right call. No, no, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But that does, that does not restrict our proclamation of the gospel in the least. In fact, it should ignite our evangelism because we believe in a compassionate God who awakens the spiritually dead, we indiscriminately pray for all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we go out and indiscriminately preach this message. In Revelation, John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Amen. God is utterly sovereign, but he's also personal. He is drawing a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation to himself because it's in his very nature to do so. God is love. If you're asking this morning, could I dare find a home with this God? Could, could he take me in, even me? The answer is yes. Romans chapter 10, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the heart of God. God desires to save. And Paul, he is driving this point home because apparently the Ephesian church had a truncated vision of salvation. They weren't praying for all people because they didn't see God's heart for all people. If you remember in the book of Jonah, God had compassion on the wicked city of Nineveh. Jonah did not, and God rebukes him for it. Are we offended by the desire of God to save all kinds of people? Do, do you wish he kept some folks beyond the reach of his grace? But you know, that, that one subset of sinners that they've just gone too far. Well, this passage confronts that head on. So our final point, we should pray for all people because Jesus died as a ransom for all. You notice the word for in verse five. Uh, verses five and six, they're the theological underpinnings for verse four. It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Paul, he is speaking in all-encompassing terms. This is the nature of reality. Though pagans believe in a myriad of gods, there is but one true God. There's a hint here that Paul is, is merely restating the Shema, uh, the basic tenet of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But, but Paul doesn't use it in an exclusive manner as in the Lord is, is, is our God and, and ours alone. No, he says this one God is the God of all people. He, he is not just the God of some. All people must come to the one true God for salvation. 
So he restates the Shema, and then he adds a uniquely Christian statement to it, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul, he is glorying in the gospel, as he frequently does in his writings. He never gets over the gospel, but he's also advancing his argument that we should pray for all people to not show concern for those outside your own little circle is to oppose the very purpose for which Christ came, to give himself as a ransom for all people, Jew and Gentile. The Hindus of India, they believe in 300,000 gods. They will not be saved by any other means than this one mediator between God and men. We should pray for them. What do I mean by saved, though? I've been saying that word throughout this sermon. You know, if we're not careful, it's just gonna become part of our Southern Christian vocabulary. R.C. Sproul, you might know him, famous theologian. He's now at home with the Lord. He was walking across a university campus one day, and a very enthusiastic young man approached him. This guy was out doing evangelism. I guess he didn't know Dr. Sproul, but he, but he, said, he said, are you saved? And Dr. Sproul said, from what? And the kid didn't know what to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I never thought about that before. So listen to Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from, the judgment of God. The very presence of a mediator implies some conflict between two parties that needs resolving. If there's no conflict, you don't need a mediator, but there is a conflict. In high-handed rebellion, we have sinned against the rightful king, and the penalty for our treason is eternal death. Why should we pray for all people? Because they are in desperate spiritual Danger, do you believe that? Do you believe that the most significant need a person has is to be made right with God? Sometimes I hear mothers who have troubled daughters and they'll say, if only she could find a godly man. And I'm thinking, has she met Jesus? (laughs) Right? I am not cold and callous. Of course I want her to be happily married. But vastly more important, is she born again? Has she been soundly converted? Has she come to the knowledge of the truth? I just believe me, husbands make very poor saviors, okay? So parents, yes, pray for your children to find suitable spouses, but don't neglect to pray for their souls. She needs the man, Christ Jesus, okay? Have you yourself been saved from the judgment of God. Have you come to the knowledge of the truth? The truth is that God the judge is also God our Savior. If you need help believing that, look at verse three. That's how he is described. God our Savior has sent a man named Jesus who has given himself as a ransom for the rebels. Again, Paul writes, the man, Christ Jesus. He is a human being like yourself. He can identify with you. He is your suitable representative. The mediator is the long-awaited Messiah in the flesh. 
But not to diminish his deity in the least, Paul has already referred to him as our hope and our Lord. He says Jesus appointed him to his service. Remember, he's talking about a previously dead man who appeared to him on on a road one day. The mediator is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is God, but he is also your brother. He came to find you in your plight. He, you, you, you had made a pit of death for yourself. You, you're, you're trapped down there. Jesus comes. He climbs down. He lets you stand on his shoulders so you can climb out even as death takes him down. He's your ransom. The substitution is clearly on display here in this verse. Jesus says, me for you. Our neighbors and the nation's desperately need to hear this message. That's why we pray for them. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, therefore we pray for all. We pray for missionaries to be sent out. Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Maybe there's one or two here this morning that we will one day send out. We need to pray for these men and women. We pray for our local and national leaders. We pray for the Hui and Uyghur peoples of China. We pray for the Kurds of northern Iraq. We pray for the fatherless in Haiti. We pray for the hundreds of refugees living right here at Cedar Point. We pray for our wealthy, white-collar neighbors of North Raleigh who are blind to their spiritual danger. Why do we pray? Because this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God who desires their salvation. Let's just take a few moments to reflect on these things and then I will pray for us.